Trump's not president anymore. Yet the horrors at the border continue. Migrant children are still being rounded up and placed in detention. Families are still being separated. And people are still being deported by the thousands. But most liberals have gone back to brunch. I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Yes, the cruelty at the border reached new heights under Trump. But now that he's out of office, too many people are looking away out of partisan interests. And the media isn't giving you the full story. How did this happen? Why are people picking up and leaving their countries? Why are they being subjected to so much cruelty on their journey, no matter which party's in charge? And why so much effort to obfuscate? All you see in those stories, and you'll see, you can check it yourself, is two-dimensional images of pain and sound bites of suffering. You have to dismantle U.S.-style capitalism in the world to really improve the situation. So you're, mili you're militarizing an area to stop people from coming instead of, like, why are people being displaced to begin with? There are three root causes of the border nightmare that the media refuses to touch. First is U.S. imperialism, causing people to flee in the first place. Second, the militarized border apparatus is cruel by design to deter people from coming to the U.S. And third, both parties are responsible. It's completely bipartisan, all to make a profit for ruling elites. And it's destabilizing the U.S., making it more right-wing. Upon being appointed border czar, Vice President Kamala Harris said, We also, because we can chew gum and walk at the same time, must address the root causes that, uh, that cause people to make the trek, as the president has described, to come here. But our leaders aren't really addressing the root causes. Otherwise, they'd be rushing to undo decades of interventionist foreign policy in the global South. Right-wing coups, the imposition of a neoliberal economic order that steals resources and destabilizes and destroys, all for the profit of a parasitic capitalist elite in the global North. Add to that climate change, to which the U.S. and its allies in the global North have disproportionately contributed, and it's no wonder people are desperate to escape. The entire village was underwater for weeks, hit by back-to-back back hurricanes, displacing more than 300,000 Guatemalans. From the way U.S. officials talk about Latin America, you'd think that the most migrants were fleeing the countries we demonize and sanction, like Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. But actually, the majority of migrants at the border are fleeing El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and Haiti. What do these countries have in common? They all have right-wing neoliberal governments propped up by the U.S. They've been subjected to U.S.-backed coups, flooded with U.S. weapons and training to militarize their police, endured decades of U.S. arming fascists to stamp out leftist movements that threaten U.S. interests, have had their resources stolen, and been forced to implement a neoliberal economic model through U.S.-controlled financial institutions like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. In other words, they've been destabilized by U.S. imperialism. Here's how Roberto Lovato, author of Unforgetting, a memoir of family, migration, gangs, and revolution in the Americas, explains it. You know, this is why you have a bipartisan support for these failed policies, because you don't really want to talk about the real source of the problem, which is U.S.-style capitalism that propped up military dictatorships, fascist military dictatorships, U.S.-style capitalism that instituted neoliberal policies to enrich U.S. companies and other foreign companies, U.S.-style capitalism that uh, has used uh, the militaries of Central America to um, protect their interests to the point of killing 150,000, 200,000 people in Guatemala, mostly indigenous people during the war there in the 80s and before, 
and 80,000 in, in El Salvador that has put a military bases in, in um, Honduras. You know, and then you have El Salvador where you have like a neo-fascist president in Bukele. And, you know, the U.S. spends more time talking about, say, Venezuela or something rather than talking about uh, El Salvador, Honduras, or Haiti where, you know, the Clinton legacy lives. Haiti has endured several bipartisan U.S. coups, all to ensure the country remains weak, poor, and ideal for sweatshops that serve U.S. and Canadian corporations. The same goes for Honduras, where a U.S.-backed military coup in 2009 deposed democratically elected President Manuel Zelaya. Today, its U.S.-allied right-wing leader, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is implicated in narco-trafficking, while the U.S. nods along in silence. These are the sorts of leaders the U.S. is trying to impose on Venezuela, Cuba, and Nicaragua through violent regime change schemes backed up by loads of propaganda. Roberto Lovato explains. I mean, they're trying to make Venezuela out to be this narco state. It's not. You know, if you look at a map of Mexico uh, in terms of mass grave sites, it's littered with thousands. El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. You look at uh, Venezuela, zero. You can't, I've challenged all these right-wing people over the years to show me a single mass gravesite in Venezuela if it's that much of a problem for, for the U.S. And it seems like the U.S.-backed governments are the ones that create the mass graves. It's this destruction and violence created by U.S. policies that people are fleeing. Both parties enforce it. And then our leaders throw up their hands when people show up at the border desperate for safety. And the media papers over the root causes. So you have this pattern that's erased when you center the story of immigration on immigrants and on the border. Mm -hmm. It's easy. It's like, it's like the same pattern you see when you know, the issues of poverty are put on the backs of black women uh, and welfare, right? As and Bill Clinton did, did a lot for that. It wasn't just racist Republicans, it was Bill Clinton. So you have this kind of imperial gaze extending outward and rippling outward into the rest of the continent. No one in a position of power ever mentions this. Certainly not Democratic leaders, given their party's complicity in laying the groundwork for this system of cruelty. I find the true leader of immigration policy in the U.S. is neither Republican nor Democrat. It is a force that transcends both parties, the Pentagon and national security interests. For several decades now, the Pentagon has produced these quadrennial reports where they'll talk about the main national security issues. And in them, the climate change and migration have played prominent role since at least the 90s, if not before. So if you want to understand immigration policy in the U.S., you would do well to turn off MSNBC and Fox because you're not going to get anywhere. The, the people of the United States are being played by these, uh, not just these, dem these rep Republican and Democratic parties, but by the media extensions of those parties that have reached a level of absolute propaganda, the liberal media, is invested in creating this artificial, this wedge between Trump fascism and Obama and now Biden. When in fact, if you look at it at the level of the laws that are consistently maintained, if you look at the investments, if you look at the foreign economic policy, if you look at the foreign military and policing policies, drug war policies, 
If you look at the support for corrupt, murderous, fascist, literally fascist leaders in Central America, then you, you, you see the workings of a continuum that's bipartisan. Democrats aren't given nearly enough credit for their role in this crisis. Mass militarized immigration detection and detention wasn't even a thing in the U.S. until immigration reform under Bill Clinton. Todd Miller, journalist and author of Empire of Borders, the expansion of the U.S. border around the world, has documented it. I think a good suggestion for anyone watching is to go to um, the 1995 State of the Union and look up Bill Clinton Immigration State of the Union. It sounds like something... Uh, Trump would say, really. All Americans, not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country, are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. The public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. Clinton's infamous immigration reform criminalized illegal border crossings, laying the foundation for the enforcement, incarceration, deportation machine. And it was under Bill Clinton that the U.S. began building a massive border wall with rusty Vietnam-era landing mats that had been used during the 1991 war on Iraq, all in response to anticipated economic displacement of Mexicans following NAFTA. And it only expanded from there under Bush and Obama into a system that became more and more draconian. We're talking a border and immigration enforcement budget ballooning from $1.5 billion in 1993 to over $20 billion today. Then came 9-11 under George W. Bush, which was a windfall for border militarization. There was the Secure Fence Act, a project to construct hundreds of miles of walls and barrier technology, and what they call the virtual wall, all of which continued under the next administration. As Todd Miller puts it, It's like the Democrats <laughs> pass the baton to the, to the Republicans, like you're, like, and, and you see the bipartisan nature of that. But the greatest expansion of border militarization happened under Obama, something he took pride in. We do have to deal with our border, so we put more border patrol on than any time in history, and the flow of undocumented workers across the border is actually lower than it's been in 40 years. There's a reason immigrant rights groups in the U.S. labeled him the deporter-in-chief. The Obama administration expanded detention and prosecution of border crossings to unprecedented levels. Separated families, yeah, he did that. And deported more people than any other president in history, possibly more than all presidents combined. At the time, the Democrats were largely silent because it was their side doing it. There was barely a peep of outrage as Team Obama deported two and a half million people, including tens of thousands of parents of U.S.-born children, who were needlessly separated from their parents indefinitely and turned into orphans. The expansion of secure communities, an immigration enforcement program launched by George W. Bush, was dramatically expanded under Obama and led to tens of thousands of deportations, supposedly of people who had committed crimes. Obama insisted it was meant to deport gangbangers. If we're going to go after folks who are here illegally, we should do it smartly and go after folks who are criminals, gangbangers, people who are hurting the community, not after students, not after folks who are here just because they're trying to figure out how to feed their families. 
But the overwhelming majority, some two-thirds of the more than two million deported by 2014, had only committed minor infractions like traffic violations, hardly gangbangers. The harsh immigration enforcement measures during the Obama years traumatized children, not gangbangers, and created a climate of fear in immigrant communities, even in places where they were supposed to feel safe. They were subjected to ICE raids in their homes and on their way to school. These practices coincided with the rapid growth of the immigration detention system, heavy militarization of the border fence, and unprecedented growth of the border patrol. This included the use of private for-profit immigration prisons that cashed in on warehousing fathers, mothers, and children awaiting deportation proceedings in intentionally torturous conditions. The detention facilities that flourished under Obama were rife with sexual abuse and lack of adequate medical facilities. Just two years into Obama's presidency, there were documented 30,000 cases of rape, sexual abuse, beating, and other abuses perpetrated against child and adult migrants. In 2011 alone, there were an estimated 5,100 children separated from their families under Obama. Not only were children separated from parents, some were adopted by American families, and their biological parents were deported and denied any claims to their own children. Then there was the Obama administration sending a U.S. Air Force plane to broadcast a warning to Haitians not to come to the U.S. after the 2010 earthquake that devastated their country. The warning blared, if you do that, we'll all have even worse problems. Because I'll be honest with you, if you think you'll reach the U.S. and all the doors will be wide open to you, that's not at all the case. And they will intercept you right on the water and send you back home where you came from. So we meddle in your country, launch coups so we can keep the minimum wage down and force you into a sweatshop economy. And then when a national disaster destroys the little bit of infrastructure that your neoliberal dictatorship allowed, we warn you not to escape or else. The horrors during the Obama years seemed to reach their peak in 2014, when thousands of unaccompanied Central American children were apprehended crossing into the U.S. and placed in detention. Some of those children were then handed over to human traffickers, where they were sexually abused, starved, or forced into slave labor. The treatment of migrants under Trump was even more depraved, for sure. But he shared the same policy goals as his predecessors and his successor, to discourage people from crossing the border. It's deterrence through cruelty. More on that in a bit. Todd Miller explains. And so by the time Trump gets into office, it's, it's, there's a $20 billion budget. He's got all this stuff. He's got every single possible thing at his disposal that he could do all that he did in the last four years. It was all there for him. He had a border patrol that was 21,000 armed mm -hmm. agents. He had all these walls already. He had so much technology. He could do, he could do, he could separate families. Yet during the Trump administration, when babies were being ripped from the arms of their parents, suddenly Democratic leadership forgot their contribution to the ensuing nightmare. Take Hillary Clinton. This is a moral and humanitarian crisis. Every one of us who's ever been a parent or a grandparent, an aunt, a big sister, any one of us who's ever held a child in our arms, Every human being with a sense of compassion and decency should be outraged. Strange. I don't recall Hillary Clinton having any compassion or decency when she advocated for the deportation of tens of thousands of unaccompanied Central American kids who sought asylum in the U.S. in 2014. What was it she said? We've got to do more. I started this when I was secretary. 
to deal with the violence in this region, to deal with border security. But we have to send a clear message. Just because your child gets across the border, that doesn't mean the child gets to stay. Former congressional candidate Seema Hernandez had this to say about it. And so this this concept of, you know, we'll just send them back home, which is something that Hillary Clinton said, we're going to send the kids back home. What home do you send them back to? What home do you send them back to when the United States backed the coup that destabilized their country and placed economic sanctions on them? We don't talk about that. One third of the children Clinton wanted to send back were fleeing Honduras, where she had helped legitimize the 2009 coup as Obama's secretary of state, plunging Honduras into record-setting violence that sent those children fleeing for their lives in the first place. And under Biden, it's continuing in the same nightmarish direction. But the partisan liberal outrage is gone. Even as Biden, like Obama before him, reminds Haitians who are currently protesting their leader, a U.S.-backed dictator, not to come to the U.S. Under Trump, Rachel Maddow cried. Lawyers and medical providers just, I think I'm going to have to hand this off. Yeah. Sorry. That does resonate. Well, people are still being separated and deported despite the change in administration. Yet no tears from Rachel Maddow. In fact, Biden has been immediately deporting Central American adults and children without letting them first apply for asylum. But at least they said bienvenidos. And families are still being separated under Biden, just in a different way. You see, Trump used COVID as a pretext to seal the border to asylum seekers in March of 2020, which created tent cities of migrants in Mexico waiting to get into the U.S. Biden has kept this policy in place with the exception of unaccompanied minors, which is what led to the massive uptick in thousands of children crossing the border and being placed in the same overflow facilities that Trump used. Under Title 42, entering the country as a family gets you immediately deported. So parents are making a desperate decision to send their kids across the border for a chance at asylum. Seema Hernandez explains. Well, we see that Title 42 is being used in a different way to reject families as a whole. And, and uh, when Trump was in office, he used that uh, specific title to reject families or to keep them in Mexico, the Remain in Mexico policy. But what the Title 42 is doing now under Biden is forcing families to separate themselves from the children so that children have a better opportunity to get asylum or be sent to family members that they have here in the United States. The Biden administration, perhaps realizing that U.S.-backed right-wing regimes have failed to stabilize the region, is even considering bribing desperate migrants to stop them from trying to escape. This didn't just happen under Trump. This happened under Bush, under Clinton, under Obama, under Trump, and perpetuated again by Biden. And Biden was a key person in perpetuating these wars because he was in office for 47 years before he took a break and then ran for president. Biden and the people that he has appointed have a history in uh, actually meddling in other countries and backing the coups that ended up killing a lot of the indigenous leaders there, like Berta Cáceres. Like she was killed by a U.S. military coup. There's also an incentive for Biden to continue to militarize the border. Todd Miller analyzed the 2020 presidential campaign contributions from the border industrial complex and was surprised by his findings. Actually, I thought it would be more like 50-50. That's when I thought it would be 50-50. And it, it came out to be three to one in favor of Biden. In the meantime, the Biden administration has tried to pacify the left by appointing Latinos to oversee these policies. 
Alejandro Mayorkas was celebrated as the first Latino to head the Department of Homeland Security. But the deportation apparatus has continued under him unabated. And what's left out of this celebration of his identity is that he's from a white anti-communist Cuban family who owned a steel wool factory under the U.S.-backed dictator Batista and fled after Castro came to power. This is the workings of what I call intersectional empire, a perspective on empire that recognizes the way that empire deploys race and gender and the new identity politics against those who would fight empire. Then there's Ricardo Zuniga, appointed by Biden as special envoy for the Northern Triangle, meaning Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. This brings us back to the role of the U.S. in destabilizing South American countries. It amounts to a policy of hit and run. The U.S. destroys a country and then tortures its victims by blocking their movement to safety with a sadistic obstacle course that might kill them. And if they manage to survive the trek, they're subjected to detainment, torture, and potential separation from their loved ones. Any discussion of the migration crisis that doesn't take U.S. foreign policy and bipartisan border militarization into account is incomplete and disingenuous because the cruelty and death is by design. And that brings us to the 1994 Border Patrol Manual, which lays out the strategy of prevention through deterrence. The idea is to deter migration by making it so difficult and the apprehension rate so high to the point that many will consider it futile to continue to attempt illegal entry. Part of the strategy includes enforcing a border infrastructure that pushes migrants into what the manual calls more hostile terrain, less suited for crossing, and more suited for enforcement, to increase the cost to illegal entrance sufficiently to deter entry. This is why the border apparatus is built to force migrants into harsher and more remote areas of the desert that maximizes the suffering and number of deaths, or more hostile terrain, as the manual calls it. The desert can be extremely hot in the day and then reach sub-freezing temperatures at night. And it's easy to get lost, especially when the border patrol flies their hell helicopters low to the ground above migrants, forcing them to scatter from the dust and causing many to end up lost in the desert. Dozens of bodies are discovered every year littered across these areas. And those are just the ones that are found. By blockading that, oh, of course, people to go around, going around like in Arizona where I live, I mean, going through the desert, going through the desert and possibly having to walk days, weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got people that I went one person who was in the desert for 26 days. It's a miracle, truly a miracle that they survived. They drank, they ended up drinking water out of a puddle. So that's why a lot of activists say death by design, death by design. And, and so, so that would be the deterrent in this kind of infliction of suffering. Um, the weaponization of the desert. Humanitarian volunteers with no more deaths are regularly harassed for leaving water around the Arizona desert. Border Patrol agents have been filmed proudly destroying and dumping the water the activists leave out to prevent people from dying of thirst. Some volunteers have even been fined and criminally charged for their efforts to provide water to migrants. Roberto Lovato says, I've been to the deserts. I've seen the children and mothers skeletonized Uh, leathery skeletons with remains of their faces. I've seen the little femur bones in the plastic bags of the, you know, like Pima County, Arizona uh, medical examiner's office. I've seen the toll that the policies from Clinton to the present have taken on Central American people and Mexican and other migrants. And it's been nothing short of 
devastating, murderous, mass murderous, impoverishing on, a, on an epic scale. But instead of getting an epic debate about these issues that we deserve, we're thinking, we, we're, we're entertained by this back and forth between the Democrats and Republicans. At least we're not Trump kind of bullshit. The U.S.-Mexico border apparatus is just one of many layers that extend far outside of the U.S. The U.S. Border Patrol trains and equips border police to implement similar policies in Mexico, in Guatemala, in Honduras, and El Salvador to prevent the movement of migrants even before they get to the U.S. border. And in the case of Haiti, they equip and train the Dominicans to stop the movement of Haitians. Biden has maintained this policy. This system is now global, employed at borders throughout Europe, across Africa and the Middle East, to prevent the flow of people fleeing imperialist policies that devastate their economies and physical safety, from Syria, Afghanistan, and Iraq, to Eritrea and Libya. A similar strategy of death by design has followed, with most land borders from Africa and the Middle East sealed off from Europe, forcing refugees to use the Mediterranean, where boats regularly capsize and dozens, sometimes hundreds, drown. This raises the question of why. Why go to all this trouble to make crossing borders so deadly? So the border system, it keeps stability, it keeps the stability of business as usual, stability of status quo, stability of rich getting richer, poor getting poor, stability of people being displaced by climate, but not really um, affecting the, the, the halls of power. It, it, it divides and conquers, and it keeps the world just kind of in its same place, which, as many have noted, is on the route to disaster. Anyhow, this thing's going to break at the seams. And there's so much money to be made throughout the imperialism, migration, detention, deportation pipeline. Money for the immigration detention industry, the border militarization industry, and the resource extraction industry that profits off of destabilizing these countries. So that indigenous Honduran child in private immigration detention, isolated from his family after nearly dying of thirst in the desert, that had to happen so U.S. capitalists could use his people's land for resource extraction and then profit off of his imprisonment before sending him back to the nightmare he fled. On top of killing people, this crisis of migration is empowering the far right in the global north. It's created a kind of blowback in the U.S. and Europe. Decades of people fleeing north to safety has fueled nativism and xenophobia in an era of austerity, all of which is helped along by the right-wing media machine that then blames the other for the domestic consequences of neoliberal decay at home, rather than the real culprit, a capitalist system that steals resources and promotes destabilization and war and the climate change that's resulted from it. Roberto Lovato places a great deal of blame on the media. People need to do their homework find alternative sources for what their government has done to these, these peoples that have been rendered faceless by Fox and MSNBC. Central Americans don't have a voice in their own stories. All you see in those stories, and you, you can check it yourself, is two-dimensional images of pain and sound bites of suffering. Mm -hmm. So first thing that needs to happen is an acknowledgement of the failure of the economic, military, and media systems to tell us what's really going on. And then that could be followed by a formal apology from the government of the United States to the people of Central America for um, decades of support for some of the most murderous, vicious, monstrous 
fascist military dictatorships and militaries in the hemisphere. Seema Hernandez wants people to understand the real root causes. The children and families are coming here because of the wars that we are waging in other countries. And we need to stop these wars. Wars are what causing these little children to be in cages, which is what you guys are crying about. So if this is something that you want to solve, then let's stop it at the source. Let's stop funding these wars. Let's stop giving blank checks to the Pentagon. Let's stop expanding and, and uh, the military bases and destabilizing other countries. Let's stop leading these proxy wars in other countries. And let's focus on diplomacy. Let's, work as, let's focus on actual trade policies that benefit not just our country, but other countries in a trade that doesn't involve bloodshed. Dismantle U.S.-style capitalism in the world to really improve the situation to, for people to have a chance to gain their livelihoods, to gain their land, to have their lakes filled again, to have their stomachs filled again, to have their families not fragmented. So, you're, you, know, we're, you know, it's better to just put up a border and forget everything than to deal with all this stuff. That's kind of the attitude of the U.S. This attitude of protecting white capitalist America from the barbarians waiting to storm its frontiers is part of our national DNA. America's ruling founders feared the natives whose land and resources they stole, just as America's ruling elites today fear the natives of the global South, who are expendable, who they must keep in poverty to maintain their exorbitant wealth. This fear unites Republicans and Democrats alike, standing guard with their fences and rifles to protect a dying system. 